Another three-point range comes to you, and we do this weekly, and we thank you for joining us. This is Mike Berardino, joined as always by the scout, the off-season coach, the actor-singer, Kimball Crosley. <laughs> uh, I think we heard some singing. And uh, we're going to start off. We'll get to him in a second. Yep, the content creator. And uh, we're going to start off with the professor, the leadoff man down in Chapel Hill, Tim Crothers. All right, gentlemen. Well, uh, it's great to see you as always. And uh, this week, I, I just, I have to get something off my chest. And this is something that I've been, I've been thinking about for a long time. But this is, this, there was another example of it uh, this, this weekend that just brought, brought the, the bile up in me again. And, and it was the, uh, it was at the end of the Cowboys Niners game. Uh, as as you may have noticed uh, in the last couple of days, uh, Dak Prescott's been doing a lot of apologizing to uh, to the referees for his um, for his statement that uh, it was okay for the Cowboys fans to be throwing trash on them as they were walking off the field. That's another issue for another podcast. But but uh, what what it brought up in my mind is that Dak Prescott should really just be apologizing for being in. Uh, an idiot uh, believer in what I call assumed victory, which is uh, the scourge of sports. And uh, I'll explain myself. Um, I, I just, it drives me crazy when, when we have one of these issues like we did at the end of that game where he, where he, uh, he scrambles for 20 yards or whatever, got the ball down the 25-yard line, and as everybody knows, didn't get the ball to the ref quickly enough, whatever. And it really has nothing to do with that play. Um, what, it, what, what it has to do with is the future of what might have happened based on that play. And what, what makes me crazy is that I think uh, you know, people just assume um, that if that if they had gotten that ball back, and Dak seems to be suggesting that as well, if they'd gotten the ball and had one last play, they would have obviously scored in what would have been a total frenzy, frenzied, crazy. Okay, nobody really knows where they're going or what they're doing, but we're we're going to snap the ball with with half a second left in this game. And we're obviously going to score score a touchdown against these guys who are who will be doing nothing but defensively trying to prevent prevent us from from getting across the goal line. Um, and it all stems back to something that that has been recurring here in Chapel Hill since back in 2015. Uh, this is the one that that really started it in my started the the scourge of assumed victory in my mind <laughs> that has that I've been railing against ever since and you guys may remember this as as members of the uh, Carolina alumni 2015 uh, Carolina played Clemson in the ACC championship game and there was a very famous moment with just over a minute left in the game where uh, Carolina was down by eight and they kicked an onside kick after scoring to get down get behind by eight kicked an onside kick um, to Larry Fedora's credit, he is absolutely correct. He, Larry Fedora was the coach at the time. Absolutely correct that the penalty that was called against UNC after they recovered the onside kick was a terrible call. You can watch the video if you want, and it's easy to easy to call up. 
And uh, there's no question that the call was horrible, no doubt. But what drives me crazy about that one, and my class, uh, my journalism class, interviewed Larry Fedora every year in the spring, uh, and it almost inevitably came up in every interview, <laughs> even years later, that, that UNC was robbed of the ACC championship. Robbed of the ACC championship by a bad call by the referees on that onside kick. Okay, coach, you are right. UNC should have gotten the ball. At the 50-yard line, with a minute to go, down eight against the number one team in the nation. And Larry Fedora always treated it as if that, if only they'd gotten that onside kick, UNC would have, would have, would have obviously won the ACC championship and potentially gone on to play in the college football playoff. Uh, ignoring the fact that, yes, not only would UNC have had to drive the 50 yards against a pretty good defense, to tie, just, just for the opportunity to tie the game with a two-point two play, which as we've discussed on this show often is a less than 50-50 prospect. And assuming all that happened, they would have had to, had to win the game in overtime against the number one team in the nation. And I just, it drove me crazy for years while he was still the coach here that he would bring that up ad nauseum, like this was the moment that was stolen away from his team that we, that, UNC would have obviously won the national championship if they had just gotten this, gotten the correct call on that play. And since then, it's happened over and over and over again, uh, leading up to again uh, in the Dallas game where these teams just, you know, they get they whine about this horrible injustice against them, ignoring the fact that that it would have still taken a minor miracle for them to win the game. So I'm just curious about if this is something that you all have ever thought about um, and you know this whether it drives you insane the way it drives me and maybe it's just it's just my connection with Larry Fedora over the years but but assumed victory um, is just is just uh, one of the great uh, fallacies of sports what do you guys think Kimball I'm trying to think of uh the best example that sticks with me, and I, I'm, I'm not coming up with something yet. I, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I, I hear your point. I, I get it. Um, but I don't think it's obviously stuck in my craw the same way as with you, because I'm not coming up with that, that one where it's just like, exactly. I still sit there and, you know, wonder what would have been or, 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 or know what would have been. And, uh, it happens in every sport. I mean, I'm not even. Well, I'm not even saying it's just football. I mean, you could. It happens well, all the of time. Course. Basketball. Of course. You know. I mean, we're. You know, oh, there's some some call with ten seconds to go. Well, yes, and we would have had to. We would have had to. Uh, you know, hit a three and win the game in overtime. I mean, it's no, it just. Of course. It's constant. Right. No, constant. it's 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 not quite related, but for whatever reason, what comes to mind as, as a long-suffering Jet fan is just a monumental play. And that is uh, the Parcells era, second season, uh, AFC championship game against Denver. We're up 10 to nothing. Now, I've never been conscious for a Jets Super Bowl. I, mean, I was like five years old, 68. I didn't know what was going on then. I, I, I don't know, I probably didn't see the game. I wasn't anywhere near it. But um, so I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to go to a Super Bowl. This is the team. We're up 10 nothing. We've got such a good team. And if you remember what changed that game was Curtis Martin 
who never fumbled. I mean, he was like the, the greatest at keeping hold of the ball of any running back ever. And he fumbled the ball. And then from there on, it was Denver taking over. And I just always was like, I can't believe that happened that way. But, you know, I'm certainly not one like, oh, we had that game. That was one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was no assumed victory there. But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to try and think of the best example of that. Because, um, yeah, of course. I mean, Dallas was way uh, far away from scoring there, even if they had, had uh, downed it properly or uh, run another play instead of trying to down it. So, Mike, while I'm thinking, you got anything on this assumed victory? Like, uh, I do. Are you still upset that, you know, your Miami Dolphins lost that second to last game of the season this year when they were on that roll? And uh, and then they actually kind of would have been in the playoff uh, chase and your head coach and whatever. And that all went down the tubes because you won uh, eight out of nine. We haven't talked about your Dolphins I, for a while. I don't want to talk about that. I, I think they right, – Because it hurts because it hurts. Like, well, I want to feel – someone else feels no, in pain. It's just so obvious they need an ownership change and, and you can't do anything about it. They're just as Cowboy fans are, are held hostage by the Jerry Jones ownership era, everything since the minute – uh, essentially, since the minute Jimmy Johnson was fired, because uh, they got one championship out of Barry Switzer uh, on autopilot, uh, the Dolphins will never achieve anything. And I've said it on this very show. Roll, roll tape. Uh, Steve Ross is a problem. But uh, what Tim's describing, I want to give a shout-out to Hall of Fame baseball writer Murray Chass, who would occasionally... Ding. Remind us, well, I, yeah, we all dealt with Murray, and he's a prickly guy, but a, a fine baseball writer, Hall of Famer. He he coined something, and he would maybe have a couple different names for it, but one of the things I just found online, so I tried to jog, jog my memory, the fallacy of the predestined hit. And I'm sure scouts talk about this, or baseball observers, whatever. If somebody gets thrown out, trying to steal or something, a team's trying to come from behind, and then the next guy homers, there's this assumption that that was a lost run, the next guy would have automatically homered, and it's not that simple. Uh, you right. would, would have been pitched differently, etc. But that happens all the time in baseball, and it's also, it makes me think of the way I used to watch uh, the uh, Carl Selmer show, and then later the Lou, the Lou Saban show, Silver. University Silver. of Miami Saturday or Sunday morning highlight show when they really this is when they sucked. This was before Howard Schnellenberger got there, and young sports fan me would watch that and they would lose a game like forty to three. But I would go through the show and I'd be thinking, well, if they hadn't fumbled, as Kimball says, if they hadn't fumbled here, if they hadn't thrown that interception there, you take away that disaster, you take away about two or three disasters. It's a different game. You hear coaches talk like this sometimes, but you can really talk yourself into absurd rationalizations of a performance being better or a team being the uncrowned champion or in Larry Fedora's case, a coach still having a job. So uh, I, I'm with Tim. That's an, that's an annoyance. I don't know that I'm as troubled by it as, as, as he is, but of course he has, he's had, uh, he's had the Larry in his classroom. Um, <laughs> Well, I think we can move on to point number two now. I'm deciding that. And oh, uh, wow. Kimball, Kimball is going to keep us right there in Chapel Hill, I believe. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I uh, enrolled at the University of North Carolina in 1981. And 
when I uh, decided to go there, I really could not tell you much about the North Carolina men's basketball program. I mean, you know, I'd heard some names that, you know, I'd heard of Dean Smith. I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference at that time between NC State and UNC and whatever. But uh, quickly, I became a rabid fan. I think it might have started with that that uh, championship game, the day Reagan was shot, if I'm remembering correctly, when they lost to Indiana. But if it didn't, it certainly started when I got on campus. And I got on campus, and I love basketball. And uh, one of the most amazing things about being on campus there was I would I would walk by Carmichael, the gym at the time, the only gym they used, and you know just between classes, whenever in the afternoon. And you'd walk in and you would see the most amazing pickup basketball games you've ever seen, right? Because there would be like Dudley Bradley and Michael Corrin and James Worthy and Michael Jordan and graduates and current players all just playing their hearts out on the floor. And you could just sit there and watch. And I was like, wow. And I fell in love with North Carolina basketball. And I uh, really, it's it's been, other than uh, the Jets, it's been the closest thing to my heart in sports. Uh, it's it's what will get my blood boiling more than any other game I watch is a North Carolina basketball game. Um, and it's been remarkable. So I'm quite surprised uh, this year when I don't care. I don't seem to care anymore. I don't understand what's going on. And this, this was my point when I thought we were going to do a pod yesterday or the day before, before the awful loss to Miami. I, it's not because of the loss to Miami. You know, I, the team was on a semi-roll from what I understand before that. But it used to be appointment viewing. I mean, I would, every time that they were on TV, national TV, which is often, I would watch, I would dissect the game, I'd be there. You know, I'd tape it if I couldn't watch it live. Well, no more. And I, I'm trying to figure out what it is. And I think it might be that I just don't believe in this team and this program right now. And it's not even Mike was saying before the game, the podcast, I'm going to talk about what a bad hire Hubert Davis is. I don't, it's not even that. It's, it's not that. Like, I, I'm going to give him time, you know. Um, I, I have a bad feeling about it, but it, I certainly am not going to, uh, you know, make it a, a decision that it's an awful hiring and that we're doomed. I just, it's, it's something other than that. It's like, I just, I don't see any, potential for this current team. I just feel it's, 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 the writing is on the wall. It's so predictable. And even with them playing differently at times and, and, and all of a sudden this is a wild three point shooting team and how fun that can be. Doesn't really get me going. <laughs> it doesn't get me going that, that all of a sudden guys that struggle with their outside shot are nailing them and, and it's bombs away. Nope. And it doesn't get me going that Armando Baycott is playing better and better. Cause it's like, okay, he can play, great. I still don't have faith that he's going to dominate a game. He's not going to become Shaquille O'Neal. And I'm just so sick of watching Love and Davis and Black and their, their flaws, you know, just never really improving other than maybe the shooting of the first two. And I just have no faith in in Garcia and Manic being able to guard anybody. So I just think, okay, we've got these stretch fours, but but it's just going to make us bad on defense when we play a good team. I don't know. And then the other thought I have is, is this, is this that I spent 40 years like fighting the good fight of our coach versus Coach K and whether that was Dean and then Roy, two guys I believed in and defended. And, and I used to argue with you guys and other 
North Carolina grads who 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 worship at the throne of Coach K and and all that. And I could sit there and say, well, look, you know, Coach K's won his five titles, but to you know, we've won five the same period. But now I just feel like Coach K's on his way out. Dean and Roy are both gone. Eh, I don't know. If I had an answer, I would tell you. But for whatever reason, I just don't seem to care anymore. Maybe it's that the whole ACC is down, but maybe that's part of it. It's just like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, like there's one or two teams that are really good in the ACC. What? Ha- when did that happen? Maybe it happened when we started expanding the ACC to so many teams. I don't even know who's in the ACC anymore. <laughs> when do they play? And do they do they still play each other? Like, are we one of those conferences that you play some teams twice and some teams you don't see them all year? What a joke that is. I no, you play everyone and you play everyone. Do you, at least do you one. promise you me that we ACC. play everyone at least once? I promise you. Okay. You're there. So tell me what it is. Do you have any insight into into what's gone on here? Or do you feel the same way? I mean, I know you guys never really felt the same way, so I don't know. I'm going to, I'll take a stab at the fact that I just, I think even, even in the years where Carolina struggled, I feel like there was always a player that you could get behind. And what I'm hearing from you right now is that there just simply is not a single player on this team that you can, that you can put your faith in. And, and, you know, I think that that's, that's valid. I mean, yeah, neither Mike or I is ever going to have the same level of, of bias that you have, but, um, I mean, it, it kind of extends also to your theory about Duke, as I know that we have we have talked to you and I ad nauseum about about how Duke is always, always has the most hated player, and you there was always somebody out on Duke, and I you know I rattle them off, but I guess the, I guess the patron saint would be Wojo, but uh, but there was always somebody on Duke that you could that you could love to hate, and that that helped that helped uh, spur your Schadenfreude toward. Toward Duke, which makes me makes me wonder. I mean, do you still have, you don't you don't have the same joy in in watching Duke and rooting against them uh, that you once oh. had either? Oh well, that's the thing. Like last night, the only basketball I watched was watching Florida State beat Duke. That was right. that was enjoyable. But um, don't you think sure. that was a jamming game? I thought that was an incredible oh, sure, it was game. Beautiful. It was so oh, it, it, it was an amazing game. I mean, no, that it, might it, have been the best game I've watched all season. It, it you, was. You, oh, I don't know how you could. Not like college basketball. I'm no, I, I'm not. Game. I'm not against college basketball. In fact, I, I love that game. But the sad part of that game was, you know, I've always, I've really in, I admired the job Hamilton has done at Florida State. But when you watch that game, even that game, you say, the same thing's going to happen every time I want to get on their bandwagon. You just know they're going to get in the tournament, and too many freaky deaky plays from the 13-man rotation is going to is going to step up and bite them. <laughs> and and they're only going to get so far and you just want them to be like this this really good dominant team you know but it's just not happening and and so that game you know even then they it, they almost let it get out of their hands and they really did they just they were able to get it back but yeah <laughs> no they, it, they could do nothing against the zone for the last 5 minutes they were completely clueless it was amazing yeah. I just I kept I kept thinking come on Leonard call a timeout and figure this out I mean, it's just and then they'd go out and they'd just run the shot clock down to the wire again and throw up a three. It was well, amazing. I actually, I have an interesting theory about that. I forget if I ever talked to you about this, about why Florida State, um, you know, kind of falls apart in certain moments that become too big for them. And, and, and I think, you know, they can shoot. We all know they can shoot. Maybe this team isn't as good as shooting as, as the other teams. 
but they're obviously feeling pressure against that zone. I mean, if if, that, if Duke had gone in that zone 10 minutes earlier, they might have hit four straight threes and said, screw you. But but I do think, I wonder if, because they're not all the blue chip prospects that these other programs get, and, and he does such a great job of bringing in athletes and then coaching them up, making them better shooters, making them better players, you know, that that deep down in some psyche, they have this little bit of self-doubt that comes up when they get to that elite eight moment, when they get to that, we could win it all moment. And uh-huh. they just, they just, that little self-doubt creeps in and, and they, they blow it. You're saying they don't have the go-to alpha male well, player. Not, not, they don't even have to no, know. I think individually they don't have that go-to. I mean, that, that might be part of it too, because you know, when, when in doubt, who's your guy, which one of the 13 guys do you play that are all done some outstanding things uh-huh. you go to, but, but almost just like each one of them, it's just like, well, it's not really me because, you know, I was not a top 50 recruit. I was not, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know it's because it happens every year. And it, and and I'm sort of sick of trying to jump on the, the Florida State bandwagon. If there's anything for you to be depressed about, I think, as a UNC fan, it would be it would be watching those two games back to back as I did last night and thinking that, yeah, the, the mentality of of the team that the UNC team that played last night is just so night and day different from the mentality of the two teams that played in the, in the nightcap that, you know, not to say that they couldn't, they couldn't find it again at some point before the season's over. But right now, you know, the, it was like watching two, two different sports, the, that Carolina game versus the, versus the Duke uh, oh, Florida state game. Although that said, that might be the one thing that can rally me is when uh-huh. Duke and UNC face off, maybe all the old <laughs> passion will come back. And maybe <laughs> just like a lot of UNC teams that, that sometimes look like they can't compete with them, they'll, they'll rise up, but more likely, <laughs> no. And how, I mean, I, I know we've sort of gone off the, off the rails here, but I have to have one, ask one other question is, how is, I mean, Paolo Bancaro is, is unstoppable. And how the heck does he take, you know, however few shots he took in the second half? I mean, he disappeared for 10 minutes. How does that happen? Because obviously at the end when they decided, all right, well, I need to be the one to carry this team team to either victory or, or at least overtime. Uh, he could just, I mean, there were times I was just like, I was just laughing. I'm like, this is, not, this is not fair. He was a man against boys for the last two or three minutes of that game. And I just thought to myself, how how is it that he is not taking you know taking that the reins earlier or just taking the reins more often for that team? I mean, he didn't touch the ball in the last possession. I mean, hey, really hey, bad, bad coaching. No, just joking. Um, mm-hmm. I I honestly think uh, you know it seemed like maybe fatigue. You know, he was bringing the ball up a lot. I mean, it, it, it when you're running thirteen guys against them and and it's up and down and you are also the ball handler at times with Duke, like, uh-huh. you know, when he brought the ball up, it was under pressure, right? It yeah. wasn't a walk yeah. in the park. Uh-huh. And so, and even that last play, it was weird. He just sort of like, uh, you take it, you take <laughs> I it. Know. I was like, what, really? <laughs> I'm and done. Like, he didn't really want the ball. I no, mean, I know. Like, well, I was really shocked. And, and the announcers were saying that supposedly that, you know, Kay wanted him to bring the ball up and just do an, do an ISO from the start. I don't know how they knew that, but uh, it sounded like that was the plan. And then he just sort of ran away from the ball and let Wendell handle it. Uh, yeah, it was weird. I, I didn't get to see that game, but uh, uh, the Duke game. But every time I've seen Duke, it seems like Bancaro is on the ground 
rolling around in agony with cramps. He got him twice in the Kentucky game way back early, and then another game he was troubled by cramps. And for a guy in tip-top shape, a world-class athlete, I wonder, you're talking about fatigue, you know, they, they might want to, I don't know what you have to give him to uh, keep him, more bananas maybe, but uh, but he's he's uh, he's obviously in great shape, but I wonder if there's there's something uh, amiss there. I'm sure the... the uh, the, the cave foundation, the thing named after his mother, uh, the sports psych, sports uh, research facility or whatever, they can get to the bottom of this. Emily uh -huh. Krzyzewski. Um, uh -huh. I want to just share something here because I, you know, I can't believe we made it this far into college basketball without talking about, I, I know Kimball and I are on, in agreement that Rick Patino is a force for good. And uh, really. And uh, uh, and I'm just looking here at real I mean real, Personally or as a coach? Uh, all of it. All of it. All of it. I got a lot of argument. No, we're not, we're not going to legislate that here, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still a pro Patino. And I follow, like 73,000 other people do, just 73,000 followers for At Real Patino, the head coach at Iona, which once employed Jimmy Valvano. Um, but it's interesting, just to wrap this up, Kimball's point that he just can't get jacked up about Carolina this year, just can't buy in. Rick Pitino took the time, which sitting coaches generally don't do, but he's trying to remind us of his relevance. Uh, he said, he tweeted, he forgot Gonzaga the first time, but he ended up naming 16 teams plus Iona as final four prospects. Most I've seen, some I haven't. And these are the teams, and we just it's just fascinating that how many times through the years would Carolina not have made a 16-team list from a, from Rick Pitino? Kentucky, Auburn, LSU, Duke, Miami, Purdue, Wisconsin, UCLA, Kansas, USC, Texas Tech, Loyola of Chicago, he put in there still, Baylor, Villanova, Seton Hall. That's a, that's a deep – and he had, later on had to correct himself they'd forgotten Gonzaga. There's others – there's certainly hasn't others. He, that he hasn't name. he coached like half of those teams? He, pretty <laughs> some much. Some of those are a little bit. Some of those yeah. are a little biased on former employers. There's no that. Providence. There's no Louisville. So you just mm -hmm. calm down. But uh, force for good, Rick Pitino, a great ambassador for the college game. Um, I'd hire him. Carolina <laughs> that was the point. Why did he bring that up? Well, I just thought that Carolina didn't make the list. And maybe Kimball, Kimball just being a massive front runner, his whole career pretty much as a Carolina fan, his whole lifetime as a Carolina fan, he's all about seeing the best of the best play pickup games. Uh, maybe he just can't root for the laundry the way a fan is supposed to. So I think part of it too. I saw him in person at at Notre Dame, and they lost that game. And when you, when speaking of the uniform. There are there's a style of play that you know a lot of teams. If you just switch the uniforms, you or just had them just wear you know plain workout clothes, you should be able to identify who you are watching by the style by something. In Carolina's case, all those years, the secondary break or the or the run and jump or the or they're just elements of it. The pointing uh, uh, for the assist, but. Um, the double stack big man uh, that they basically invented, uh, all that, all the Dean things, but it's it's kind of become uh, homogenized. And uh, uh, Tim sees them a lot more in person than we will. But it's just something to think about. 
later in the year. If you if you really did not, if they were not wearing North Carolina uniforms, would you know you're watching North Carolina? Just a mm -hmm. thought. That's a fair point. Yeah, fair point. All right, so we're two thirds of the way through our show. This is three point range. Uh, this is considered our third season, the way Anchor.fm does it, because we started in a December of 2020, and then we made it all the way through 2021. And this is a show that uh, was brought to you during, it was launched during a pandemic, and the pandemic goes on, and so do we, thankfully. Um, you can find us. Uh, what a brilliant segue that is. How about that? Well, there's three, <laughs> you know, we're just, you can't think of COVID and three-point range separately at all. It's all, all tied <laughs> together. Uh, but uh, we're, we're less lethal. We're, less, we're much less lethal. Uh, we're more Omicron than we are Delta. But we got, you know, Spotify and Amazon podcasts and, and uh, Google and Stitcher and all that stuff. And we have a three-point range uh, sub-stack in which Kimball gets to regale you with tales from college, or high school basketball coaching, basically the white shadow of our day. And I encourage you to, to read that because I don't intend to. And then oh, also, highly recommend it. I, is it I good? I'm hooked. I'm is it hooked. good? Oh, then it's a, like it's, a cereal. It's, it's like a cereal. It's, it's 21st century season on the brink. You got to get you got to oh, get your sub-stack. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Facebook. You can find us at the uh, Facebook page so you can like it and and leave comments and find our latest content there. Um, all right. So the final point here, parting shot. I have a long list of things I could have touched on. And I uh, made that list of 16. Always, always the list. Yeah. Always, always the list. What the list of Patino list? You want the Patino list? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Oh well, you know, they're, Carlos Correa just hired sixty-nine-year-old Scott Boris here for emergency representation. Give us your best point, Mike. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, and I do think that uh, everybody in the world heard that whistle during the Raiders-Bengals uh, game, and I don't know why the pool reporter still has to be the only one to talk to anybody from a crew. Of course, in this case, they only talked to Walt Anderson, not Jerome Boger. Uh, the, can, we, you know. can we just make that but your point now? Because the there, there's some interesting thoughts on that. There are. Yeah, well, we can just go with that. It would go with that. Let's, let me just say that um, I. it's so frustrating, or I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating for the Raider Nation uh, because they were the on the wrong end of the tuck rule long ago uh, in the snow at Foxborough. But here they are where with a whistle. Everyone could hear the whistle upon replay, but for some weird reason, uh, the Drew Brees-Tarico team didn't even discuss it for 10 minutes until the whole nation was tweeting about it. And for some reason, the pool reporter was in a position not to follow up on Walt, with Walt Anderson when he said his explanation was that that crew, the Jerome Boger-led crew, they did not feel that the whistle was blown before the receiver caught the ball. Everybody on the planet who was aware of that game and got to watch replay after replay eventually when NBC came around. In real time, you could see it. So that I didn't really care who won that game. I, I didn't have any 
uh, well, I did later uh, do some in-game wagering, and I uh, I failed. But <laughs> I would just say that uh, that's it. I, my way to improve the sport. I was there when I don't know if this improved the the world or anything. But when when the late Eric Gregg had to come in after having the world's widest strike zone, Tim, I believe you were there with the Levon Hernandez game. I was. And do you remember how a packed room of reporters was waiting for Eric Craig? He comes in, he goes there, he sits down there in a long, hot afternoon there of, of uh, you know, massive strike zone uh, for him. For It was both sides, so it was, it was wide. It was wide, and, and, he, and he was stunned that it wasn't a question about the brilliance of LeVon Hernandez. It was about <laughs> what was going on with your strike zone. And then the next question, the next question, the next question, he took about five questions. He got up and left, as I recall. But I think Jerome Boger or any referee who's in a situation where that is the story should be brought into the media room, and we should have the ability to ask questions on behalf of the world fan base, the world observer, the people who pay the freight for the sport, not uh, a once removed or somebody who's going to sanitize the situation the way Walt Anderson tried to, retired official Walt Anderson. Uh, and all we got a few days later was a report that Jerome Boger's crew would not be officiating any more NFL playoff games in this cycle. But Raider fans will never forget that because they ended up losing by a touchdown. All right, all right. And and easily, you know, would have been a different game potentially doing the uh, plugging and ignoring the fallacy of the predestined hit. So, so that's wait my a point. second. Yeah, we were there. Before Tim gets talking, I, and Tim, you must talk about the Eric Gray game. I didn't even realize you were there. We're both. So there. I hope you have some good stuff on that. But Mike, you realize, of course, you're talking about assumed victory. Mm-hmm. I, exactly. I, I just I said that. I said I just my I just, script. But, I and, said that. Just, no, you didn't. And, but anyway, the other thing of is, of course, the Raiders the, would have won if right, this had happened. Of course. Yeah, but but what, what what is ridiculous about that controversy is, forget the comment about the whistle was before whatever. Or, it's a or, lie. Walt no, Anderson no, lied. No, but but whatever. But if you watch that, like I don't think the whistle affected the play. Yes, I did. think it would have been wrong. No, the Raiders didn't stop. The whistle was Nobody, so that ball. The everybody ball was stopped. The All the defenders was, stopped. No, the, the whistle the, happened as Murrow, that before he releases the, the ball. As he's releasing the ball, I, 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 if you tell me that any Raider was going to make a difference in that ball, and and if they had said, "Look, you know, it was an innovative whistle. We didn't think it affected the play because uh, the ball I think was you're on the way." Here. I, I, I don't know. Be interesting to see, hear, see what Tim thinks. But so I, I think that was like. A little overblown. I mean, it was a bad job, but and yes, your point is the referee should have to talk to the media. I I, I grant you that, and and better explain that. But it is funny that that was such a big deal because I didn't think it made that much of a difference. But I'm not a Raider fan. I didn't Tim? see it live. Uh, I only saw it, so I didn't see it in in real time. So I think that hurts hurts my ability to opine a bit. Uh, I did see the the replay, but I I think I was already being being influenced by the way it was being discussed by the by the whoever was showing me the replay um yeah i mean my my initial reaction just as a you know just not being part of the viewing audience but seeing it later was uh i'm kind of on kimball's side i don't know that it really affected the play uh but 
again, I didn't having not seen it in context, it's a little hard for me to 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 comment on that, but I can certainly comment on the fact that you are you are writing my script about assumed victory. I mean, this idea that, oh, well, if that had just happened, then obviously the Raiders are going to win. Well, yeah, there's a lot more to it. Um, I think assumed victory works better uh, on on things that happen right at the final whistle than than uh, happen earlier in the game. But but it's all sort of part of this same idea um, that that is just so embraced by fans of, of a losing team that if only this had happened, we would have won for sure, which is utter crap. Um, and I don't know. I, again, that's, it's a little different. It's a little different case here. But um, back to the Eric Gregg game. The only thing I remember, if I'm remembering it correctly, the only thing I remember uh, about that game was that uh, it was one of the great. We all have lost great stories in our in our career. Things that just didn't. When the game just didn't go the way you wanted to, because you had the you had the story nailed. And oh my God, I had the greatest. Bobby Cox story. I'll have to tell you guys another time, but I had the greatest Bobby Cox story exclusive. Nobody else had it uh, leading up to that that game. And if the Braves had won, uh, I was going to just blow the lid off of it. And the Braves lost because Levon Hernandez threw to an eight-foot strike zone, and that story never saw the light of day. So that that's all I really remember about that is the utter disappointment of watching uh, Levon deal with that massive strike zone and and my story just just turning to dust in front of me, which I'll never forget. Why can't you say more about we're gonna, that? The beauty of here is we're teasing the next show. That's the leadoff point, unless something else happens <laughs> in the next week. We're certainly going to get to that fairly soon. Oh, is that what we've lacked all along is, is those yes, um, yes. cliffhanger endings? Yes. Like, that's One of us will die. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope we hope Bobby we hope Bobby is a collection guy walking in behind you right now. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll try know. anything to get another view. Another, another yeah, view. that's what we're missing. Tune in next time when Tim tells us the untold story <laughs> from the 1997 ALCS or NLCS. All right. Well, thanks for listening again, everybody. This has uh, been. Three Point Range. And for Kimball Crosley and Tim Crothers, this is Mike Ferradino saying have a great week, and we'll see you next time.